0: welcome to Still Watching Nine Perfect Strangers. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer, Joanna Robinson.
1: And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic, Richard Lawson.
0: If you're just joining us for the first time ever, uh, I should let you know this is not our usual format. What Richard and I usually do is pick a show, watch it week to week, discuss it, get really in depth with it. What we're doing here at the tail end of the summer before we wait for our next big show to start is just hit a few highlights of, of things that are going on. Um, and I re- something I realized, Richard... <laughs> is that there's a key element that's missing. And when we do these sort of highlight episodes, there's a key element of it, uh, the whole process that's missing for me. It's going to sound like I'm kissing up to our listeners. But honestly, it's like the lack of listener email and feedback because I feel like they're so good at prompting great discussion. You know what I mean? Like, I, I miss it <laughs> when we do these one-offs.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. They're also really good at theorizing and noticing little things that I don't pick up on and all that. So it I miss, yeah, I miss the kind of sense that we're having at least some kind of virtual conversation.
0: Yeah, a larger conversation. And I just, like, it helped me realize how much those emails make me a better watcher as well. So um we miss you guys uh we will be back next week at the beginning of our next sort of uh big show which is american crime story colon impeachment um you know we will have a preview episode for you next week katie rich will be joining us uh the great katie rich uh will also have interviews galore for that one so you know get get back on the old emails just off your memory of what it was like at the end of the 90s for you or if you weren't born yet tell us that as well uh and, no if and... <laughs> you weren't born yet do not email us do not
1: ever acknowledge your youth i don't want to hear about it
0: <laughs> but still watching pot at gmail.com uh is is where you can reach us for that we we want to do this because we've done like you know the other nicole and big led sort of mystery prestige shows big little lies the undoing um this is another of course liam martiardi uh book she wrote big little lies and so we we wanted to sort of Dig into a little bit. There's a lot of people in this cast also that are huge uh, personal favorites of, of Richard and myself. And so we wanted to just sort of check in. This is going to quote unquote spoil up through episode four, which I think is a good place to check in because it sort of reveals a premise that we couldn't really have talked about in the first three episodes. The first three episodes dropped as kind of a binge. Episode four is is the first of the week-to-week model that they will be approaching from here out. Uh, so let us premise the story a little bit. Um, this is a story of uh, several people who are having a tough time in their life who go to a very prestigious, very 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 expensive, very very hard to get into uh wellness retreat run called by called the white lotus. <laughs> run by uh a woman named Masha played by Nicole Kidman and uh she's got a couple staff members but, but we focus on Masha her her small staff and these uh nine perfect strangers. And um it's, it's yes, there's, of course, a lot of DNA overlap with uh, The White Lotus, which just made a huge splash on HBO, um, because I'm always thinking about the TV show Lost. I, of course, think about the TV show Lost, but also, like, <laughs> another thing to think about is uh, Survivor, which is in the DNA of both White Lotus and Lost, uh, and uh, is is something that we should all think about when we think about disparate personalities put into a pressure cooker situation, sort of like Big Brother— plus survivor uh, is what this is. Do you do you feel like that? Like, especially since the premise is this wellness guru has handpicked these individuals as the perfect blend of what she wants to sort of tinker around with? Doesn't it? I mean, it gave me reality show vibes. How does it feel to you?
1: Yeah, reality show vibes, for sure. Definitely. I see the lost in there. Um, You know, it's it's a kind of contemporary tweak almost on like on a desert island narrative or like a westing game or agatha christie kind of thing like Mm. it's not that everyone has connections to one another that they don't know about but like there is a grander purpose for why they're there that they kind of aren't aware of in the beginning um and i suppose that could be similar to like surprises on survivor you know like turns out you know uh you're actually in different tribes than you thought you know whatever like 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 twists i guess yeah
0: so we should say in the cast of the show uh we've got a lot of great fantastic folks melissa mccarthy bobby cannavale michael shannon regina hall uh samara weaving are there any particular standouts for you in this in this mix um
1: well i think everyone's pretty good um you know it's fun to see luke evans kind of out of the i don't know action movie you know historical like epic kind of stuff that he's done in film a lot um you know so i like i like seeing him in that and melvin gregg um who plays ben on the show he was really good on season two of american vandal i don't know if you ever watched that netflix show that was yeah, kind yeah. Of a, a fake documentary um that was kind of brilliant but the second season lesser than the first but melvin Gregg on the second season was really great so it's cool to see him and and it's also really fun to see manny jacinto out of the the good place and into this very bad place uh
0: yeah looking uh just very zen and no
1: worse for the wear (laughs) Uh
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah. um so for me, and I, I talked, we, we, I should say we have an interview this week with director Jonathan Levine, who directed all the episodes, something that he said to me in his interview, uh, was that he, and he was like, I can say this now that people have watched episode four, that this is a uh psychedelic soap opera, like <laughs> kind of like thinking of it in that way. So the thing that is confirmed in episode four that you might have. Grokked, uh, by what happens in episode three is that Masha is microdosing her guests with psilocybin, uh, mushrooms. And so some of their cathartic emotional journeys are aided by, uh, illicit substances. And, um, this is her attempt to sort of, uh, have a, have a breakthrough in wellness that might gain her notoriety, does she also care about their well-being? That's a question that you might want yeah. to hold on to for the rest of of the series, but um but you know, I don't think you can deny that these people are at least making some movement on some emotional issues that they had kept buried.
1: Yeah, and I think that like, you know, it is a soap opera in some ways, but I think um whatever character archetypes anyone fills, they don't fill it completely because I, you know, they they even Masha who seems to be this kind of nefarious person with a shadowy past um is humanized you know i mean i I think it's similar to the white lotus in that way where it's like there is actual genuine pathos here it's not that like some person is just irredeemably awful or broken or whatever um i I, and i appreciate that the show in all of its kind of soapy trappings still has that nuance
0: and that's the point of one of these stories is to take archetypes put them in a pressure cooker and then dig into the actual human the things that they have in common um, underneath their veneer of whatever it is that feels like that makes them strangers, right? Um, there's a few interesting pairings that, that sort of come out of this. A pairing that I really like is uh, Grace Van Patten plays um, the daughter of, of the Marconi family, Zoe. And she has this like connection with uh, Luke Evans' character, Lars. And that's one of those unlikely pairing moments that I find really fun to think about, uh, in something like this, like what would put these two people together? And, and I enjoy watching them find common ground. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Because they're both sort of observing this whole thing from a, a a more considered distance than some of the other people, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and we kind of find out more about that considered distance in, in terms of, um, Lars's character um and also there is you know there i mean there are reveals about everyone, but um Zoe you know sh- her sort of position in this world gets fleshed out more and and yeah, I think that they're they're an interesting actor pairing and and a certain certainly a character pairing i, I think it's also i mean it, this felt more inevitable, but it was still nice to watch it's still been nice to watch rather um you know francis um and Tony. Mm-hmm. who start the show hating each other, kind of realizing, like you were saying, that they, oh, they do have some commonality and it's kind of drawing them together, um, which I'm sure was part of Masha's evil, quote, plan. I don't know if it's actually evil. <laughs> um, evil, maybe
0: beneficial plan? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Their their encounter, which is like the side of the road screaming Masha, right, is like, it's, oh you know, like I, I appreciate that, that Jonathan called it a psychedelic soap opera because that is like almost out of classic uh homework movie tropes, right? Like the, the city, the city gal and the roughneck guy or whatever, even though he's like a, he's a celebrity in his own right. Right. Um I love this dynamic. Uh Something that Jonathan pointed out is that Melissa and Bobby are like old friends that have worked together a number of times. And so there's this like nice shorthand there. And I just really, I mean, like it is kind of a classic, uh you know, unlikely couple will they want their romance running through the middle of this thing and I I just I really enjoy it. I think Melissa's great. Uh and Bobby is especially sort of blew me away. Like I we know that Bobby Cannavale is great. We've known that since The Station Agent, but like I think you know and and then occasionally he reminds us in a big way. Like Boardwalk Empire was a big time to be reminded like, yeah, this guy's great. But like I don't think I don't think we always remember uh that he is one of our our sort of greatest actors i think uh yeah. that he has this in him you know
1: yeah he's great and I, it's funny you bring up the hallmark thing because i don't know if you read this in um i think it was THR but the second season of nine perfect strangers is going to be set in a town that forgot the meaning of christmas <gasps> so yeah oh, no. and, like, i think one of the characters might be santa claus wow yeah. hot santa <laughs> can't
0: wait but
1: uh, I, think that, yeah. I think the hallmark thing is funny because you're right that there is that kind of like we don't like each other but maybe we secretly do you know or we, we figure out we like each other over the course of things like but because the show is hulu and it's more grown up and it's you know um it it can kind of tweak that familiar formula in darker ways than we're used to seeing and i think that like I kept expecting there to be like a murder or something, but the big reveal being like, oh no, you've all been sort of slightly tripping this <laughs> for a lot of this time, um, felt a little bit anticlimactic at first. But it actually, though, it, it, it spins the show in a, diff- in, in a direction that, like, I think in a good way, pushes it away from the recent glut of like murder mystery stuff we've had on TV.
0: There is, however, a, like a mystery running through this that, yes, that is actually is. additive to the show, it's not in the book. I um, mean, I talked to Jonathan about this a little bit. Actually, like, I keep, I feel like I keep referencing this uh, interview. Usually we leave this till the end, but uh, so I don't keep spoiling my interview. Let's just go now to our interview with Jonathan Levine, and then you and I could talk about it after. Sounds good. I'm Claire Fallon. So I I wanted to start by asking you, uh, there are so many phenomenal performances in the show. It's hard for me to pick one, but the one throughout that sort of just kept knocking me back was Bobby Cannavale. And he is so good in this episode when he sort of like breaks down and confesses. This great guilt that he carries from his past, and I was just wondering, like, when you cast Bobby for this for this role, you know, did you expect him to go this this hard?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I did not know who you were going to pick because we have so many wonderful people. It's um, true. It's true. Yeah, uh, uh, when when I when we cast Bobby, I mean, casting Bobby was was you know, I had I'd loved him for a very long time, um, and. Melissa, of course, knew him and and they did work together in, I mean, I think this is like their third thing that they've worked together in. Right. Um, I guess the the short answer is, did I know he was going to do something this good? Like, no, I actually didn't. Like I was very impressed with even just when he showed up and the way he was sort of carrying himself, the way he looked, I'd asked him to put on a little weight, um, he was reluctant, but then uh, COVID hit, so I think it just happened anyway. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, you know, I just, even his, like, when he was making costume choices and stuff, like when we were, t- you know, the, the hat he would wear or when he would wear, like, a Planet Hollywood shirt, he seemed to have, like, a very kind of um, layered, textured, clever approach to this guy. Um, and then... um you know, that day we, we, we filmed that scene. And we we basically filmed the scene you're talking about um, where he confessed to the cinema. So we filmed it, we had two days to film it because it was one of those things where we would kind of film it at magic hour. And our cinematographer, uh, Yves is only available light. So you basically wait for magic hour and then you can sort of shoot nonstop for about 25, 30 minutes. And, 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 and you know, we didn't think we would get the scene um, in 30 minutes. So we, we kind of scheduled it over two days. Um, and yeah, it was like, you know, not only was he able to sort of navigate, um, the emotion of it and sort of deliver almost like this, like, uh, on the waterfront kind of like monologue. It was like, he, he also, I I gave them a chance to to kind of play around a little bit. Since it, since it was a little light, we were able to use two cameras at the same time. And they sort of embellished the scene as well, and 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 even with the words, like they kind of made the words their own, and I think that really also helped um, ground the scene. Um, but no, I, I I was pretty blown away by Bobby just across the board, and and his ability to to nail the emotion and and also just be funny. He's he's, he's kind of amazing. Yeah.
0: And and how did that existent relationship that he has with Melissa, when you when you direct two actors um who have a a friendship or an established working relationship, um, how does that impact like your job? Is it is it much easier? Is does does that ever get in the way? What is that like for you?
2: I mean, in this particular instance it was easier. I think, you know, it could probably be harder to, depending on the personalities involved. These guys were just so game. Um, and had such an easy rapport and also really um, when analyzing a scene could really get to the heart of what was working, what wasn't working and, and you know, could could help improve um, any scene just just based on their insight. So, yeah, no, in this particular instance, it was easy. I think I was a little trepidatious because you're kind of just walking into a pre-existing social unit. So I think if they kind of uh, had turned on me, it could have gone bad. But luckily, um, we, we all collaborated really beautifully together. And I think the other cool thing was, like, even though this is the third thing we've done together, the tone of what we were doing with them was was completely different. It was it was more grounded. Um, it was more romantic. It was more, really, more dramatic. Um, and I think they were having a really good time doing that. So basically, just, you know, I, I was able to... Um, help navigate these two beautiful scene partners who kind of really knew what they were doing and, and, and knew what they wanted as the scene. And luckily, um, it was exactly kind of spot on for the tone we were going for.
0: You mentioned uh, shooting with um, only available light. And, you know, it's somewhat self-explanatory, but just, you know, in case folks uh, listening at home don't know what that means. Um, can you sort of explain what it means and, and why you decided to go with that approach?
2: Yeah, I mean, we didn't shoot with available light all the time, I should I should um, clarify. We we mm. shot at every exterior um, was available light. And, you know, I think that um, basically that just means that, you know, you're not putting any big movie lights up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's nice for a couple of reasons. One, it just gives you a flexibility as a filmmaker. Um, And two, I think it really, you know, we were in this beautiful, beautiful place and just having the opportunity to sort of really capture or just just crudely, like organically what the light was doing, um, I think was, was, was really nice to also kind of amplify the scenes of the show, which is like you have these kind of, you know, people who are living in a modern world and they have been kind of transported to this very, a natural setting and i think i think for me seeing the context of these characters in this natural setting and being able to um use the natural setting in in an organic way um, was really important as well um but plus like i think you know a lot of cinematographers and this is perhaps a relic of shooting on film but a lot of cinematographers do add light um to things and it doesn't make it look better it's one of those weird kind of contradictions Um, is that the more light you add, usually the more it looks like a, like a, like a studio comedy or something. It starts to get flat. And like, we really wanted to have a sophisticated kind of artful look to it.
0: And so that, um, and you mentioned being able to use two cameras. So without the light, the rigging in the way you're able to shoot both sides of a conversation at once. Is that what you're saying? Or just coverage from different angles?
2: Yeah, no, without, without, you know, big lights, you can, you can sometimes shoot both, both, characters at the same time which is which is especially helpful when you have someone like Bobby and Melissa um who are such great improvisers um you don't have to like remember what joke someone made up touch <laughs> the camera right. so that when you turn around you know what I mean and yeah. that's, that's actually like what having done movies with Seth Rogen and, and and stuff like that it it you know and these brilliant improvisers that is um something that you really have to be mindful of is when you turn around you're like, okay, what joke was funny on that side, and you have like, you know, a list of ten of them, but you never really capture the magic of someone actually in real time hearing the line and then perhaps improvising a line back. You know, that's 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 very important to uh to have some cameras when you're working with um people who like to improvise. Or especially people who are as good at at it as Melissa.
0: (laughs) So uh, so you mentioned the um the you know, this staggeringly beautiful location where you're filming and and how how impactful that is to the story. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that this was like a, you know, a COVID dictated shift to shoot where you where you ended up shooting. And from a production standpoint, when you when you decided to shift locations, you know, do you have to re-scout? Like what what is your process in terms of folding in a new, new setting to a story that you had already planned maybe elsewhere
2: yeah i mean it was it's it, it, so i will tell you the true story and uh it is something that could only have happened in this exact moment of the universe because um basically we were we were meant to shoot in la um and we were let's say about five weeks out and then it was like that day where the nba shut down and tom hanks got so mm-hmm. you know that sort of day people were like okay i guess this is going to be a real serious Right. Um thing. And and then we just, you know, we pulled the plug. We were about to build sets and we were about, you know, we were gonna kind of it was hard finding this place in Los Angeles. Um it was really, really challenging. And so we had we were gonna build a lot and we were gonna we we found like a couple really nice like mansions, but it wasn't gonna have this sort of idiosyncratic, unique beauty that we that we really craved. Um the sets were gonna be beautiful um but it just was going to be sort of a hodgepodge of a lot of different locations um and then we sort of shut down for a little bit and we were really hoping you know to to get back up in la because we had already hired a lot of crew and and there were a lot of jobs at stake but it became clear if we wanted to go on our timeline um that we were gonna have to go somewhere else and so we were probably the i would say the first or second production back up because we decided, you know, we had producers who are uh, Australian, famously Australian, uh, Nicole Kidman, and, and also my friend Bruna, who um, were both Australian, and Australia was looking like um, they were doing better with COVID than America. So, um, however, we, as the filmmaker, I was not able to fly to Australia and, and scout. Um, there just wasn't a time for that, and nor was there sort of... Um, I just, it just, it just logically did not make sense in that, in that moment of time. Mm-hmm. So I basically said, we kind of sent someone on the ground to like, a, and, um well, this place is in a few different kind of locations where we could, there were a few different hotels where we could take over the whole hotel. And so I picked the location and we found this beautiful place where we did ultimately end up shooting in, in Byron Bay, but I picked it from like FaceTimes and <laughs> um, which is like, you know, when you're shooting somewhere for a hundred days or whatever, 90 days, it's like a pretty big risk. Um, so I was basically terrified, but I was like, this show is not going to happen unless we kind of pull the trigger on this right now. So when I showed up there, (laughs) I was pretty nervous. I was like, if I have messed this up, this is going to be disastrous. But, but luckily, um, when I saw it, it was, it was even more beautiful than than the fixtures. Um, and yeah, you know, it wasn't a show kind of born out of COVID, but it was a show that we knew we could, we could execute during COVID because it was a small cast. There were not a lot of extras. Um, and we could sort of create a little bubble. Um, but we got very lucky being in Byron Bay as well, because they, I don't think had had more than like two COVID cases this whole time. Um, so it was a combination of really bad decision-making on my part to pick a location from uh no.
0: pictures,
2: <laughs> and really good luck um I would not recommend it like if you're an aspiring director listening to this conversation I would not recommend picking a location uh only from pictures I would say it's very good to go to the location I mean usually you would go to the location and like I would sit there for hours and hours and 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 pour over you know this kind of and make a rigorous decision but this was like it was like different times
1: you know I yeah. think
2: now it's problem now production's going up are are it's there's a little bit people are a little bit more used to uh the framework of COVID and, and, and the limitations and, and our um but it was uncharted waters for us. Yeah. Um,
0: so I I mean you you picked well. It's absolutely it's like one of the most gorgeous uh settings I've ever seen for anything. Uh so good job you. Um, um
2: thank you. Yeah. <laughs> We're very lucky. Very lucky.
0: I wanted to ask you, you know, there's this uh, revelation uh, for folks who don't know that is coming. There's a revelation at the end of episode three, the beginning of this episode, that um, there is uh, psilocybin microdosing happening uh, as part of this wellness program. And uh, there can be some sort of uh, tricky tropes that people fall into when they're trying to do sort of altered states acting. And I was wondering if you had your eye out for that, like what you didn't want and how you made sure that you sort of landed what you did want from your performers.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have, I have um, had the opportunity to direct a lot of people pretending to be on drugs. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) I think every single thing I've ever done has someone um, has, has, has has a, at least one, like Molly set piece or one, like, so I I'm, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm like to consider myself like an, an expert in this uh, <laughs> one particular area of directing. Uh, I mean, and, and of course, this is a, a, a different tone. And also, this is something where we kind of just wanted the audience to think something was a little bit up. We didn't really want them to know um, exactly what was going on. We wanted to be a little bit ahead of the audience with this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we would, it it was kind of written into the words a lot. Um, You know, David did such a a beautiful job with with these scripts. Um, And so it was, you know, the performance sort of organically came from the settings and and, and the words. I did not want anyone to be playing messed up. You know, I didn't want anyone to be kind of deadly when you're really like playing people on drugs. Because actually, I think when you see people on drugs, it takes you a second to figure out whether they're on drugs. Right. Um, it's not just like, oh my, you know, it's not just like someone, um, you know, like, uh, like Reaper Madness or something like that. Like someone just like freaking out. <laughs> I think it's, 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 you know, there was subtle behavior. Everyone sort of um, landed their own sort of subtle behavior um, on the drugs. And some, for some people, for Michael, it was one thing for Bobby. It was another from for Melissa it was another. And, 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 you know a lot of it can also be dictated in the edit so um we you know we would try i would have people try things at the beginning and end of a take, for example um and so i wouldn't have to use it if i didn't want to or um you know sometimes i their their rhythms um you know i would ask people to do things a little faster or a little more you know I w- a little more druggy and like i would say a little more druggy and then you know that would I would sort of just see what their interpretation was of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But I think luckily, even if they just delivered the words as intended, um, I think that was pretty much where we wanted to land, was like, is something up with these guys? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that it, 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 you know, it's tough. You really want to find sort of nuance and subtlety within there, and you don't want people to be playing um, messed up. Unless you're doing it for a joke, like in long shot, when Shavis is on Molly and has to <laughs> yeah. negotiate a hostage crisis. Um.
0: <laughs> how much um, it's, I, I, I'm like, a hu- I'm a huge fan of your film work, and so I just don't know why it didn't occur to me why you were particularly well-suited for this aspect of the show until right now. But how much <laughs> How much you. does your camera movement around something like that, like the way that you move the camera around your performances, yeah. how does that contribute?
2: Well, that's that's another thing, and that's um, something, especially in episode three, that we were looking at was was using not just camera movement, but composition and lens choice to start to indicate that something's getting a little more messed up. Mm -hmm. Like when Mm -hmm. the guys are sitting around the the fire and the the ladies are in the um, hot springs, Um, we were doing things with camera and with focus. Um, that would just sort of show you that things are slightly off. We were using some Dutch angles. We were using a little bit of drifting in and out. Um, and that was all meant to sort of indicate that something is, is, is not right here. Um, so, yeah, that's another tool in, in the toolkit is, uh, is just, you know, subtlety with camera, but also kind of um, shooting it in a, in a way that you wouldn't if everyone was sober. We, we tried to have very shallow depth of field, um, which I guess means basically that only the things that are in, on, only like the faces of the characters are sharp and in focus and the background kind of mm-hmm. um, goes very soft. Um, we would do subtle things with sound design um, in order to give you that impression that something is not quite right here.
0: You've mentioned about, you know, some of my favorite films as, as like some things that you were looking at in order to capture the, precise tone that you're going for here which is something i don't know the word i would use is unsettling but like there's comedy there's drama there's a lot of stuff going on you looked you mentioned parasite melancholia the lobster get out um picnic hanging rock all this stuff and so i guess i'm just curious when you're looking at these other films or or whatever you're looking at how exactly do you transplant that inspiration? Is it just something that seeps into what you're doing or are you actively trying to uh, insert certain um, shots or, or, or what does that look like for you?
2: It is more like a subconscious thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, especially when I'm doing something that's hard to place like genre wise, I mean, I guess genre wise now I can sort of say that I, I see it as like kind of like a psychedelic, soap opera a little bit. <laughs> um so I, I think um you know I so I think um looking at all those things no I'm not like I, I I will pull skills from from various um from various movies, from various reference movies and I'll put them up, usually I'll put them up on my wall in my office um when I'm directing. I didn't have an office on this because of COVID, so I just kinda kept them in, in on my iPad. Um and no, it's not really like that overt a, like, you know, I want to steal this shot from here or this shot from here. I think I would talk to my cinematographer. Um, I would talk to my production designer and I would say like, this is what I like about this element of this. Or I would say, you know, in this, this could be like this scene um, in, you know, uh, Repulsion, for example, or um, Midsommar, which which we, we did kind of get, uh, borrow a little bit from their, Um, color palette in some of their compositions. Um, It's more just a feeling, you know, it's more you just wanted to kind of uh, infuse the soul of of the piece with with a little bit of its DNA. Um, It's not like, um, it's not like I want to rip this thing off from here and this specific thing off from here. It's, 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 it's uh, a little more mushy than that. It kind of just, I just wanted to get into the, um, Subconscious of all the collaborators who who are um, creating the visual, you know, feel of the piece. It, it, and it's certainly really only applies to the visuals. I think with performance, um, I was really just trying to um, be in the moment with these actors and get them to imbue these characters um, with humanity, and mm-hmm. and and that was just incredibly easy. You know, for for when you have a cast like that. Um, you know, a cast of people who are just so warm and likable and so technically skilled, um, it's really not that hard to capture the humanity of, of the people you're looking at. And, and also, I really wanted people to to empathize with the characters in spite of their kind of sometimes obnoxious and bad behavior. Um, and that's so much better it's just casting and just casting, you know, amazing people who are, who are also having to be really lovely people. Which I did not know when I cast one. <laughs>
0: you lucked out. Time. Yeah, I know. Um, you, you've you've uh, said a million wonderful gushing things about Nicole Kibben as a as a producer on this project. This is, if I'm not missing one, her second um, Leanne Moriarty adaptation, TV adaptation that she's worked on. So when you're when you're working with her as a producer on this, like. Do you do you go to her at all as like a Leon expert? Is she like well, you know, when you when you're when you're adopting this author's work, this is a sort of thing you want to go for. Um, what kind of conversations did you have around that?
2: I don't think it was so much about that because that was sort of all kind of ironed out in in prep. You know, like once sure. once like once the scripts are written, once David writes the script, it's you know, and I read the book, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but once David writes the scripts, those become for me the text. You know, right. um, because He's taken liberties, made changes, done, you know, so that, and, and so I'm going off of that. Um, so, no, I mean, I think that there were, uh, there, there, you know, there are things um, I was conscious of in adapting David's work, you know, as a, as a student of his work and as a, mm-hmm. as a collaborator of his. Um, but no, I think it, it wasn't, we, we didn't talk about it in the sort of macro like that. We really talked about the characters and what they meant and what their journeys were and and more just stuff that used the, the actual text as um as a reference rather than thinking kind of globally uh about leon's work um and i think that that was wise because it's like you can't really like this is nothing like big lives lies you know what i mean so it's like, sure. i don't think there's anything like instructive i don't think there's any instructive from um from from Big Little Lies to bring to this, you know, I think for me the only thing I wanted to do was make sure it didn't look like Big Little Lies or feel that much like Big Little Lies. I was I, I wanted it to be more like, um, you know, to me this is much more kind of tonally pushed than that is. This is a, a, a much kind of um more crazy <laughs> combination of tones um, than that was. So I think that that was for me the biggest kind of thing to navigate, um, and that was more. I don't think Nicole could really help me with that. That was more between me and myself. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. So we certainly talked about tone. And we certainly talked about what, you know, what we wanted the viewer to get out of, you know, certain scenes and, and, and you know, when we wanted things to feel funnier, more grounded, you know, we we she, she's she got a very kind of strong sense of tone. And we knew that we were taking some big tonal swings here. So we were we were both just kind of holding hands and being brave about it together.
0: I'm going to hold on to that descriptor of psychedelic soap opera. That's going to linger with me. It's a really, it's a really good one. Um, The, um, you know, speaking of the sort of adapting this book, and I I have heard you say that like the script is your text. The book is not like, the book is not your Bible. The script is your Bible in this. Um, I think you told at least one actor not to, maybe not to even read the book just so that they could make sure that they were playing this version of the character that you're well, I, did,
2: here. I, 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 I did say that but I didn't I didn't that was also we had like two weeks to go and we were <laughs> and we were I think, I think if we had unlimited time I would absolutely uh, recommend reading the book it's just yeah I told Tiffany like I think your character is pretty different in the show and I just don't want you to get confused by reading the book because I had, I'd heard from some actors previously that they had been confused as to remembering what parts of their character were from the book and what parts were not um but i certainly recommend the book to everyone including all actors in the show the great book i don't know how we, we i would i would give you a link to it now i definitely uh, i definitely,
0: the- I, I definitely <laughs> didn't think you were uh a- anti-literacy or anti the book or anything like that but i wanted I, I wanted to ask you about this this uh there's a significant difference. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that like some of this mystery element of like what's going on with Masha and who is, who is harassing her. And there's this episode ends on this big yeah. moment. That's additive to the script, uh, from the book. And, um, and I'm just wondering if in your conversations with David, like something that I've heard from a lot of people who make TV these days is that they, like adding a mystery element because it really encourages audience engagement week to week of the audience like sort of playing detective and actively trying to figure out what's going on so when you add this mystery element to this already bonkers wild amazing story like um is is that the intention there or what what are you what are you looking for in the in the mystery element
2: yeah, I mean, I think, you know, not to speak too much for David, but I think that um, the, the book is this, you know, beautiful um, piece that gets you really inside um, all the heads of, of, of these characters. And that's something that is very well suited to the literary form, right? Um, you, can, you can access their internal monologues. You can access um, their feelings in a way that you really kind of can't um, unless they're explicitly stating it um, in the, the form of a, a limited series. Um, and so, and it's also not a very plotty book, right? It's not, it's not a very plotty book to get there and they work through the problem. And so I think that that was a challenge in adapting it, you know? And I think that, um, audiences today, myself included, you do want some sort of story engine, even if it's just the illusion of a story engine to keep you hooked and engaged. I mean, this show more than anything is, uh, uh, you know, a piece of pop. Uh, it's a top conception, I would say, and and so we are very interested in keeping the audience hooked. We are very interested in keeping the audience engaged, and and we're and and these you know this stuff can be really really fun. I think you know just mm-hmm. from watching the undoing, like I, I I found that incredibly fun to be playing that guessing game. Um, so I think that that adding that mystery and and a few other things that we add that you'll you'll see coming coming up um is, is designed to do just that. Um, it's designed to give you um, enough to stay hooked in that way that you'll stick around for the characters revelations and the the the, the humanity and, and and the the arcs of these characters, um, which to me is like the you know the most compelling part of the show. But I but I also understand um, the role of uh, the mystery and, and and I really enjoy it as a viewer. Um, so, yes, yeah, that's, that's kind of what it's there for is to give you more of a plot engine um, mm-hmm. and plot propulsion to keep this thing moving forward as we're also um, giving you uh, these kind of character studies.
0: I love that. And then my, and my last question for you, and, and thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. But my last question for you is, did you have what like what, if any, were your preconceived notions about the wellness community going into this project? And how has working on this changed? Uh, and I can't help but think it must have changed uh, your ideas around that whole uh, wellness community coming coming through
2: it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting because I, I I think I am like a lot of the characters in the book in 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 that I'm both easily susceptible to like the idea that someone can help me, and I'm also very skeptical of it. So, um. <laughs> But I'm also, so, so I understood where all these characters were coming from. You know, I, 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 am, um, I, I empathize with where all these characters were coming from, um, you know, I feel like they find themselves in a very particular situation <laughs> so that is not a situation I would, I would find myself in, but, but, but I do think if I went to a retreat and, um, someone was microdosing me with, with, with mushrooms, um, I would be intrigued. I would stick around. Um, I think that it's it, it's it's so interesting. I, I I you know we're we're we 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 were not that interested in like critiquing it. You know, I think I un, we're interested in uh, sort of analyzing the the need and the um the sadness and the trauma that would lead someone to to this place. Yeah. Um, and then and then you know beyond that, I think I, I really just feel a lot of empathy. And yes, I think there's probably a lot of places to take advantage of people. And yes, I think there's, um, something inherently, uh, preposterous about thinking or hoping you can change yourself in, in 10 days. Um, you know, unfortunately that's, that's, that's not really how it works. Um, but I certainly understand the instinct to want to, and I certainly, um, I certainly, uh, I don't think people are foolish for, for, for trying stuff. Um, so I, I don't know that my, 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 uh, thinking on it has, has evolved that much beyond, like, I understand where it comes from. Um, I understand why people want to do stuff like that. I mean, and, and look, it's not just, um, it's not just like the wellness community. I mean, so many things in our lives right now, uh, are designed to sort of make us, feel better or make it you know i have a, I have 10 apps on my phone that are designed to make me a better person <laughs>
0: same worse, same but. yeah <laughs> so it's like
2: you know i just think it's 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 you know look we live in like a really scary kind of uh time right now um yeah you know and 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 i think that um i think that it, it's it's not just it's not just COVID. It's not just you know all, all the innumerable kind of things that are going on in the world. It's like we all have these phones, and we're all addicted to these phones, and we're all looking at Instagram and seeing people living lives that seem better than ours, and we're all you know. It, it, it's just it's just I find it to be incredibly complicated and fascinating. But I but I will say that I think um, I truly understand it. Um, I truly understand the instinct and. um and i i i don't know i just I, I i i would hope that we could all kind of uh come to the revelation that like if you want to be happier if you want to live a healthier life if you want to that 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 that's hard work and that's not something that you can find in an app or in a in a 10 day um wellness program um but i but i certainly uh you know if something if someone was like hey you can go to this place and uh, Maybe they'll drink a smoothie and maybe there'll be some, uh, mushrooms in it and maybe, you know, I'd be like, okay, cool. Um, I will, uh, I will sign up, especially if it was exclusive, especially if it's like you can't get in. I'd be like, I really want to get in.
0: <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I gotta say, all I want to do now is go to Byron Bay and, and drink fruit smoothies. The way you shoot the fruit is like pornographic. So yeah, like give me all the, give me all the smoothies for sure. Uh, well, thank you so much for the chat. I really appreciate it. Okay, so something that he said, like, this is actually a question I didn't uh, expect him to answer as honestly as he did. But I was like, you know, is the mystery put in there for that sort of, uh, you know, similar to a reason that Mike White puts a dead body in the baby of the White Lotus, like this thing that it's hard nowadays to uh, get uh, prestige television made without, uh, you know, a big mystery to hook the audience. So is it there to, like, keep them hooked? And he was just sort of like yeah not in like a really opportunistic way, but just sort of like mm-hmm. of course you want your audience like engaged and curious about your show so if you if you drop a little mystery in there, uh what's going on with Masha, who's threatening her, uh that's a way to get people sort of talking week to week about about what might be going on do you like is there does that feel at all manipulative to you or does that feel just perfectly fine?
1: It doesn't feel manipulative, but something, because I, I reviewed the show, something that I mentioned in that review that bothered me about the series was that, like, it does feel like after four episodes that we should be out of the kind of introductory phase of the series, like halfway through these eight episodes. And I kind of still feel like it's been a lot of preamble, you know, and to get the fourth episode kind of clarifying the circumstances in a way that we can then move forward, that that, that arrival feels a little bit late. Um, and I also, I do kind of wonder, and I think you and I have talked about this, maybe on Little Gold Men or other podcasts, but about like the Netflix problem of like, well, we need to stretch it to 13 episodes for, I don't know, algorithmic reasons or something. And I feel like that can work well for storytelling, but sometimes it feels detrimental. And I kind of almost wondered like if they had been limited, if Nine Perfect Strangers had been limited to six episodes, let's say, so six hour story mm-hmm. versus an eight hour one, Like maybe some of that storytelling in the earlier episodes would have been a bit more efficient.
0: The other thing that's interesting about that, though, is um, this ties back into a conversation we had over on Little Gold Men about the Ted Lasso conversation that people are having about season two. Something I found out this morning that I didn't know is that the first three episodes of Ted Lasso, when they wrote them, they thought they were going to be dropped at once. In a binge, Mm -hmm. because there is this hybrid binge week to week that people are experimenting with. That's what's going on in Perfect Strangers. That's what happened with the flight attendant. You know, like get get people hooked with a little mini binge and then draw them out week to week. Um, That's not what happened to Ted Lasso. Those episodes unspooled week to week. And um, I have to wonder if maybe. You know, if people had seen all those episodes, those first three episodes at once, they wouldn't have some of the questions that they have about Dead Lasso season two. And similarly, those three episodes, first three episodes of Night Perfect Strangers, were dropped in a binge. So maybe they were written with the idea that like someone's just going to sit down and power through these and then they won't, it won't feel like it's drawn out if someone watches it all at once. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think if you were doing the first chunk of this series, you know every tuesday night or whatever like that it could get even you know that would be pretty i think um frustrating um but yeah i guess arriving at the end of episode 3 where um god i forget the, the character played by asher ketty who was kind of the lone australian heather heather in, yeah yeah heather uh in this australian production um <laughs> well at least shot in australia um she you know the, the episode ending with heather being like are you drugging us which is a great moment and it's like it kind of zooms in on her face and then kind of pulls back across the table as they all turn to look at Masha. you know um if you're going to watch those three episodes in a binge or like when it's all available on hulu which i guess a lot of people did um that is a satisfying ending but i think i watched it more piecemeal because i had screeners
0: yeah and i mean i i think it's worth talking about this show there's only been four episodes so far but the show hasn't landed with like as big of a splash as some of the other um, similar shows. However, I was talking about this (laughs) in a, in a meeting we just had, but like the thing to remember about something like white Lotus or even the undoing is that I feel like people didn't really get caught up and even mayor, you know, mayor happened a little earlier, but those shows that people get kind of obsessive about, Usually they wait a little bit and then get obsessed in the last two to three weeks. That's the pattern that I've been seeing anyway. Oh, um, for sure.
1: Yeah. And and I think that like that is a, a viewing pattern that we, I mean, you can't really get used to something that's that kind of erratic and unpredictable, but like at least we can expect the unexpected in terms of like when people are watching things. And I think, you know, a small fraction of people in this country and around the world are actually on Twitter. But I know that like Twitter and other media coverage of shows is pervasive enough that like you see people being like, "All right, fine, I'll watch it," you know, and then they catch up with White Lotus right. or whatever, and then they like it, and then they're they're there for the last two episodes or whatever when everyone else is watching them. So that could happen with this, yeah, and because it, it, it has such a big cast that like I I feel like people will have to be drawn to it eventually.
0: Well, let's talk about um, I think someone that you especially like or someone I like, Regina Hall, uh. I don't think it's a spoiler to say basically we get like people have their one on one sessions with Masha and it's not like there are um, there are character centric episodes per se. It's not like, oh, this is the Heather episode and this is the, you know, whatever episode, the Zoe episode. Um, But in those one on one sessions, we do get a little bit more of that sort of in treatment, deeper character work with a given character and then usually after that there is some sort of like explosion we do see a sort of explosion from regina hall in this episode in that sort of dummy uh, exercise uh she's playing this like bottled up nice woman who has a lot simmering underneath regina hall is a, a performer we like well what do you what do you think of this marriage of performer and character
1: i think it's fun i mean i think regina hall has been so good in such varied things you know um done great television work she's in the scary movie movies at least one of them um and then she was so good in support the girls uh, a film that came out a few years ago that mm-hmm. we at the new york film critic circle gave her best actress for that which i was very happy about and so you see her in this role in the beginning and it's fun seeing her as the sort of not dowdy but sort of like oh like gee whiz you know kind of like innocent mm-hmm. um clearly who's a little bit frayed at the her edges you know Um, And then having that break into something much darker is, I think, a great arc to play and one that I haven't seen Regina Hall do. And I think also a, a lot of black actors don't get to play that kind of like, you know, that sort of guileless, seemingly guileless, innocent sort of like, just I'm just a mom, you know, like that's such a kind of cliche of like Midwestern white womanhood or whatever. And so it's fun to see Regina Hall get the opportunity to play that character and then to have new dimensions of that character revealed as the episodes go.
0: It reminds me a lot of uh, what Yvette Nicole Brown did on Community, like a similar um, Mm -hmm. sort of vibe to that, but with the potential to break out of it in an even bigger way than Yvette Nicole Brown occasionally got to do on that show. But yeah, I do. I do. I think it's an interesting role for this character it is interesting i mean i just think regina hall is so beautiful so it is like <laughs> it is interesting to try to cast her yeah. in like a dowdy a dowdy sort of <laughs> space but uh, like a we'll wig can it.
1: do a lot but it can't do that much
0: is usually in a sort of author avatar sort. certainly like a, a main character we're rooting for and if there is a main guest of the various guests we're watching here um it is francis um i actually love this for melissa um Totally, this show is trying to do something that is a little hard to wrap your arms around sometimes, right? Because there's, like, comedy and there's drama and there's all this sort of stuff. So you, you, it's an unpredictable and kind of unsettling vibe. And I think that's actually what they're going for. But, like, it can be hard to sort of crack on. And But what it means is that I think Melissa is in a really interesting space where she's, like, naturally funny. And she, according to Jonathan Levine, she, you know, improvised plenty. But, like, there's this enormous sadness. And, of course, we've seen Melissa... Do some great dramatic work, um, but I, I just think this is an interesting like blend for her. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean,
1: I you know I I think you and I both love her work in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, yeah. the uh, Marielle Heller film from a couple years ago uh, that got her a lot of awards and an Oscar nomination, everything like that. And it was such a great marriage of her comic sensibilities and her other acting abilities, you know, and um, that kind of weariness. Also, a writer um so i think this is kind of a tweak on that kind of amped up for the tone of the series um but she's really good at playing uh frustration you know um and not frustration in like the kind of like oh i hate the world everyone's an asshole but kind of frustration with like in under her own skin you know she just seems so restless and and that's a quality that she's really good at tapping into partly because she's such a good physical actor um, and has been in so many things where she's doing either slapstick or even the way she kind of like shuffles her gait in. In can you ever forgive me? Um, she's just really good at communicating presence, um, even when she's not speaking. Um, and yeah, I just I like when comedians like explore the sort of underside of their comedy, which it seems like McCarthy is doing in her better roles. Um, you know, like the funny is still there, but there's that funny is coming from something, and I think she's tapping into that.
0: The last actor I want to, like, sort of take a tour through here is Michael Shannon, and something that I thought was really interesting um, is that he kept um, saying that he didn't think he was the right actor for the part. <laughs> Apparently, at one point, he asked Jonathan Levine, should this be David Hyde Pierce? <laughs> like, why is it me and not David Hyde Pierce or It is
1: funny casting, um, in, in the yeah. same way that Regina Hall's casting is, you know?
0: Yeah. Um yeah for him to play this sort of like I don't want to say beta male, but you know like uh whatever whatever you want to describe it, you know definitely wears their cell phone on a clip on their belt kind of guy, and him being Michael Shannon, but again, I just think that that um for for when he wilds out, I think his wilding out is um you know is allows Shannon to like lean into all that weirdness that he's incredibly capable of, you know, yeah,
1: and that weirdness I think also oftentimes reads as menace you know and um even in some in playing a character sort of seemingly as anodyne as this guy you just sense that there's something about to break or that there's something that you know there's a force that's being held at bay that's going to like come rushing out and i think an interesting subversion that the show does in terms of this character is I mean I haven't watched past I think the 5th episode so maybe something else is coming but like it seems thus far that actually that menace that like you kind of innately detect in Michael Shannon in this case is actually grief um mm-hmm. and and a helplessness about how to help his wife and his daughter his surviving daughter you know um and I think that's a really again with is similar to the way that McCarthy's Innate, you know, McCarthy-ness is being used in interesting ways in this show. I think sim- that's that's true of Shannon. So I think that kind of casting against type actually is smart casting because um, you're you're using you know the whole part of the Michael Shannon Buffalo, <laughs> all parts of the Buffalo, I guess is the is the term. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> the Michael Shannon Buffalo is my new uh, band name. <laughs> um, all right, so I mean. you know if you're to keep watching the show richard which um you know is obviously what the people who made it would want you to do what would you want to see um happen in in the final episodes that would get you sort of even more excited about the show as it exists
1: uh that is a good question i i think that i thus far am struggling for the why of it, not the, why are they there? And why is Masha doing what she's doing? But why is this show happening? Like what, what is trying to be, what are the grander conclusions? And maybe that's just because, you know, um, we just finished white Lotus. And I think that show had so much to say about this country and the world as it is. And, you know, while also telling a kind of, you know, a really engaging series of stories. Um, And I think the stories are here in this case, you know, we have a lot of flashback, not to like actual like images of, of the past but people talking about their past so we're getting that sort of compelling deeper narrative behind each character but like i think i'm just curious what the show is trying to say if it's trying to say anything you know what i mean because like we've seen jokes about like wellness culture and all that before so it, that the show isn't really pioneering any new territory in that regard so i'm curious to see what's going to set it apart uh from everything else thematically.
0: I am also interested to hear um, I have read the book, so I'm I'm curious about this mystery element. And if if as it resolves, it will feel sort of organically connected to what the original story is trying to do there. And um, I think I think I'll say this. I'm always excited to see Nicole Kidman do a big performance and she's doing like a big performance. There's there's a fun wig and a fun accent all together in the shaker here in the smoothie of, of this, of this performance. Uh, and it's a beautiful show in terms of like, they shot it in Byron Bay and it's like completely gorgeous. And like, I want to exist in that geodesic sort of dome space that they have. stuff like that. Um, and I do like these opportunities for these actors, but I, I am curious to see how it all sort of hangs together in the end. And I am curious to see if people get hooked in because I think it does have it is like sort of compulsively watchable in that way. That's that soap opera way that Livine mentioned of just sort of um, who's going to lose it this week. <laughs> sort of interesting what, which actor gets to like uh, go off, pop off this week. Uh so I think it's something that people could get really uh hooked on if if it if it rises above uh you know whatever else people have their heads buried in so i'm I'm interested to see how how the rest of the series unfolds and if people uh get into it uh, and if if they land the plane um
1: yeah, and I also think that like Ben and jessica the the couple who's are having like sex problems, I think they yeah. haven't quite moved to the forefront I know, yet and I kind of curious what they're doing there you know.
0: I hope they do. You know, like I've seen a little further than you, but I still haven't seen like these two actors, both of whom we really like. Samara Weaving is like, I also think the that the, like what's interesting in the book is that um, that young woman in the book has sort of ravaged herself with plastic surgery. I think about Samara Weaving is like, that's just what Samara Weaving looks like. Um, but they, they sort of styled her in such a way that I think the impact is the same. Not that she looks ravaged by plastic surgery, but just like, just down the rabbit hole of her own image. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think I think they styled her incredibly. Um, but that vulnerability, like, when she approaches Frances and tells her that she just, like, loves her, you know, that, like, sweet romanticism that's I- in that character, I think is a really interesting juxtaposition. But yeah, I haven't seen them sort of have their major spotlight moment either, so I hope.
1: Especially because I don't, I can't think of a recent show or, you know, not even that recent show where, like, one of the characters sort of almost tragic arcs is that they won the lottery and hate that the the money you know i think that's really interesting and
0: it's uh it's just lost that's it
1: (laughs) oh christ you're right
0: (laughs) no that's a long time ago so i think your point still stands yeah yeah but yeah if you're listening to this
1: and weren't born when lost came out absolutely stop listening to this and never email us by the way
0: We get emails all the time on the uh, on the show that I do about Lost. We get emails all the time from people who are like, "So I was eleven when Lost came out." And I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, "All right." So, in summary, watch Lost, watch White Lotus, watch Nine Perfect Strangers. If if you're feeling Island FOMO, these are some good things to watch, and uh, and we'll see how it all wraps up. Uh, Richard, until we're back on the steps of the Capitol, uh, back in 1998. <laughs> uh for american crime story impeachment where can folks find you
1: well i'm gonna just be digging my own grave like in a therapeutic way just to see if it works <laughs> i'm curious um and while i once i'm down in that grave staring up at the beautiful australian slash californian sky uh i will be tweeting at Rylos and writing things at vf.com joanna until we uh head to dc where will you be
0: um i will be not slaughtering a goat, but maybe a Michael Shannon Buffalo. Um you can also find me on Twitter <laughs> at Joe Wrote This on vanityfair.com. And yeah, we'll be we'll be back with with uh with our berets on for American Crimes for Impeachment uh next week. Bye. <laughs>